Hey everyone, and welcome back to episode 14 of Quick Cuts, a plastic surgery podcast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing carpal tunnel syndrome, so let's get started. Carpal tunnel syndrome is a compression neuropathy. Specifically, it's a compression of the median nerve at the wrist as it passes through the carpal tunnel. To start our discussion on carpal tunnel syndrome, we'll review some relevant anatomy, starting with the boundaries of the carpal tunnel. The transverse carpal ligament makes up the roof of the carpal tunnel, while the proximal carpal row acts as the floor. The ulnar wall of the tunnel consists of the hook of the hamate and the pisiform, and the radial wall consists of the scaphoid tubercle and trapezium. The contents of the tunnel include the four tendons of the flexor digitorum superficialis, the four tendons of the flexor digitorum profundus, and the flexor pollicis longus tendon, along with the median nerve. After passing through the carpal tunnel, the median nerve gives off a recurrent motor branch, which innervates the opponent's pollicis, the abductor pollicis brevis, and the superficial head of the flexor pollicis brevis. The median nerve then terminates into digital branches, which provide sensation to the radial three and a half digits and motor innervation to the first and second lumbricals. You should remember that sensation to the palmar skin overlying the thenar eminence is provided by the palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve which branches prior to the median nerve entering the carpal tunnel, a fact that can help you distinguish carpal tunnel syndrome from more proximal lesions of the median nerve. We'll talk next about the evaluation and management of the carpal tunnel syndrome patient. In taking a history, you should evaluate for medical comorbidities associated with carpal tunnel syndrome, with common conditions including diabetes, hypothyroidism, rheumatoid arthritis, and pregnancy. It's also worth noting that space-occupying masses and acute wrist trauma, such as distal radius fractures or lunate dislocations, can also produce carpal tunnel syndrome. Your history should also assess for occupational risk factors, which include exposure to repetitive motion or vibratory activities. A common misconception is that typing is a risk factor for carpal tunnel syndrome, but this has been demonstrated to be untrue. On focused history, Patients with carpal tunnel syndrome will commonly report numbness, tingling, and sometimes pain in the median nerve distribution, which can be either intermittent or constant. Patients will often report that these symptoms will awaken them from sleep at night. Patients may also report motor symptoms including clumsiness and weakness with pinch and grip. Your physical exam should include a comprehensive hand exam. Gross observation of the hand may reveal atrophy of the thenar musculature and advanced disease. Sensory exam should specifically note gross sensation as well as two-point discrimination in the median nerve distribution. A Semmes-Weinstein monofilament test can also be utilized in the sensory exam. Motor testing should evaluate strength of the thenar musculature, specifically thumb abduction as powered by the median innervated abductor pollicis brevis. Provocative tests for carpal tunnel syndrome include the Phelan wrist flexion test, Durkin compression test, Tunnel percussion over the carpal tunnel, and the more recently described scratch collapse test. A spurling test can be used to evaluate for cervical radiculopathy, which can mimic carpal tunnel symptoms. The diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome is clinical. Electrodiagnostic testing, which includes electromyography and nerve conduction studies, are not required to make a diagnosis. In some scenarios, however, they help to distinguish carpal tunnel from alternative peripheral nerve disorders, and can also be beneficial as an objective measure of response to treatment. In patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, 
Nerve conduction studies may demonstrate prolonged sensory and motor latencies, as well as decreased conduction velocities. On electromyography, or EMG, findings may include decreased motor unit potential recruitment, as well as the presence of sharp waves, fibrillations, and fasciculations. The first-line treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome is non-operative, including the use of splinting, NSAIDs, and activity modification. Steroid injections are occasionally used as an adjunct for non-operative treatment, but most frequently provide only temporary symptomatic relief. Despite this, steroid injection can be a useful diagnostic tool when the diagnosis is unclear. Additionally, patients that respond well to steroid injections are likely to benefit from surgical treatment. The surgical treatment of carpal tunnel syndrome is carpal tunnel release, which is accomplished through the division of the transverse carpal ligament. Both open and endoscopic techniques have been described for carpal tunnel release, and both demonstrate similar long-term outcomes. Complications of carpal tunnel release can include infection, iatrogenic injury to the nerve or palmar arch, pillar pain, which describes tenderness of the thenar or hypothenar eminence adjacent to the carpal tunnel, and persistent or recurrent symptoms. Rare cases of complex regional pain syndrome have also been reported. And that ends our discussion on carpal tunnel syndrome. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. You can also find my entire audio library along with other plastic surgery resources online at theplasticsfella.com. For questions, suggestions, or feedback on the podcast, you can reach me at jakemarksmd at gmail.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at jakemarksmd. Thanks for listening. See you next time.